We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal editorial page. Thank you for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else that you get your podcasts. And please kindly leave us a nice five-star review. On today's episode, we're going to take a look at what's been happening in Iran. On September the 16th, a young woman from a Kurdish family, Masa Amini, died in a Tehran hospital after she'd been arrested by the government's religious morality police for not wearing the hijab, the headscarf that's required of Iranian women. The government insisted that the 22-year-old, who was otherwise apparently in excellent health, had somehow died of a heart attack. But eyewitnesses reported that she'd been heavily beaten. As news of her death spread, protests erupted across the country and grew increasingly virulent. The protests are continuing today. In conditions of extraordinary state control of information, it's hard to get an accurate picture of what's been going on, but credible reports suggest that more than 200 people have been killed. So what is actually happening and what might it all mean? After 43 years of repressive theocratic rule by Iran's mullahs, punctuated by repeated episodes of protest, could this finally be what some have taken to calling a second Iranian revolution, following that original Islamic revolution in 1979? Or will this round of protests meet the fate of so many previous ones and be crushed by the ruthless regime? Well, to look into all this, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Ruel Mark Gerecht, one of our most insightful and knowledgeable commentators on the Middle East. Ruel is a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and a former fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. He writes frequently for the journal editorial page, among many other publications, and he's the author of several books on politics and society and culture in the Middle East. Early in his career, he served as a case officer at the CIA, so he has profoundly important insights, and I'm very glad to say that Ruel's with me now. Thanks very much for joining us, Ruel. My pleasure. So let's start off, for me then, with this, if you give us a sense, and again, you have good contacts and good sources and a good understanding of what's going on in that country, of where we are in these protests that have been going on now for nearly two months. We've seen some extraordinary pictures. We all saw those pictures at the prison in Tehran, which went around on social media. We've seen pictures of mass protests in the streets and violence by the authorities. What's your sense here of where we are in this protest? I mean, it looks like we're on a slow boil. The regime, it's proving incapable of shutting these protests down, largely because they are leadership, largely because they can be spontaneous. I mean, every time a woman decides to unveil, you have the potential for a demonstration uh, igniting. And it's an expression of deep-seated rot in the system and deep-seated anger. We have seen protests generated before by the mistreatment of women. We've seen protests for a lot of different reasons. And the regime has been well aware of this dangerous potential. I mean, starting with the first major urban riot that followed an unexpected cancellation of a soccer game in 1989. The regime has been fearing what they call the unanticipated unseen spark that could set off significant demonstrations that rapidly accelerate into protests against the regime, not just policies of the regime. So I expect this to go on. I don't know if I'd go so far as to say this is the beginning of the great unwinding, but it might be. It is interesting that there are lots of VIPs within the system, individuals who were once quite close to Khamenei, the supreme leader, 
who are now expressing a certain dismay in the way the course of events have, have unfolded and at the regime's policies. I think the regime actually doesn't know what to do. If you were to make a parallel with uh, very significant demonstrations in 2019, which was really a revolt against the poor, by the poor, the regime killed probably you know upwards of 1,500 individuals within just a few weeks. They've killed a lot fewer now, and I think it is because they're scared to do it. They're very uncertain of what to do when you have so many women involved, when you have children involved. Islamic regimes are supposed to protect women. They're not supposed to brutalize and kill them. I mean, as you've just very well spelt out there, we've seen these waves of protests over pretty well the entire lifetime of this regime, and they seem to have disparate causes. Sometimes they're about protesting against the strict religious enforcement of rules. Sometimes it's about economic issues. Sometimes it's about corruption. Sometimes, as you say, it's just kind of violence spilling over from sports or whatever else. Is this in any way qualitatively different, do you think, from many of those protests that we've seen? Is there some particular reason to think that this time might be different in terms of some sort of fundamental change in Iran? It might be. I mean, it's still too soon to know. I think obviously the regime is hoping that they can kill this thing slowly. But if, uh, and this is the big if, if women in particular are willing to put themselves on the front line, they sort of compel male action. So it is going to be men in the end who crack the system, and that will be because you have enough men in the streets that overwhelm the security services or because the security services in and of themselves crack. And it's important to note that the regime doesn't really have that many mobile security forces. It's very difficult to get accurate numbers on this, but I mean, to be generous with them, they probably can deploy around 125,000 men nationwide. That's not a lot given the size of Iran. And they've learned from the past that it's very tricky to deploy security units that essentially are coming from the same neighborhoods, the same towns as the protests. So they have to be clever in how they handle this. And with this demonstration, literally every time a woman decides that she's going to unveil, it literally has the potential for sparking a protest and certainly sparking a lot of corrosive disrespect that suggests one of the regime's raison d'etre, that is the maintenance of Islamic values, simply no longer holds. And one of the reasons that Khamenei and his elected president, Ibrahim Raisi, decided to introduce this crackdown on women on the veils was because unveiling had become quite common in Iran, complete unveiling, even in some places like South Tehran, which is considered by the regime, at least it used to be, as a base of its support. So it's got a real ethical crack up. And the regime is trying to figure out how to restore some legitimacy to it. I think it's going to be extremely difficult for it to do that. And you can't really put a timeline on these things. But if they can't quiet this down, if they can't essentially make women return to the veil, then this is going to continue to corrode the system. And again, I have to emphasize, there seems to be a lack of fear amongst the young and even amongst members of the regime itself who are expressing criticism of the Supreme Leader and how he has handled this affair so far. Tell us a bit about the leadership. You mentioned, interestingly, that there are suggestions that some members of the leadership have expressed regret about some of the events. But we have this interesting 
combination. We always have the religious leadership under Ayatollah Khamenei. Now there are strong reports that he's very, very sick. He's very old. He's been, you know, the supreme religious leader for a long time. And there are some suggestions. Give us any. You can give us any indications there as to whether he's on his deathbed, which is some reports. And then, as you also say, you've got this presidential figure, this strong man. Raisi, that many people you know regard as a fairly fearsome, regarded in the country as a sort of a fearsome character. Give us a sense of what's going on there. What's going on with Hamani? What's going on with Raisi? What maybe you know? Again, there's this long, elusive search in the West for the so-called quote unquote moderates in the religious leadership or in the political leadership. What's your sense of what's going on as they deal with this crisis? To start with, the supreme leader and his selected president. He wasn't really elected, Ibrahim Raisi. He was selected really for only one reason. I think, and that was to deal with the contingency, the possibility of massive internal unrest. He's essentially a thug. I mean, he's risen through the dark side of the Islamic Republic. He didn't rise for his jurisprudence. And he has been given a lot of unpleasant assignments, and he has performed them well. And so that is essentially why he's been selected. He's trusted. He's like a mini-me of the Supreme Leader, but without the Supreme Leader's erudition. But that also suggests, I mean, given that he was selected, what, a year ago, was it? Yes. So that suggests that long before these protests, the regime knew it was... It would be crazy if it didn't know, but it's striking that, it, as you say, in appointing someone specifically to deal with domestic unrest, it knew how much of a domestic powder keg it was sitting on. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the regime's strengths is that it is fairly self-aware and it's reflective on internal dissent. It's important to remember that in 2009, just after the regime had crushed the pro-democracy Green Movement, you had a conclave of senior Revolutionary Guard Corps commanders and the Basij get together and sort of dissect what had happened and also dissect their actions and response and take away the anti-American conspiracies, the anti-Zionist conspiracies, their reflections were actually fairly thoughtful. And what's interesting this time is they've sort of broken their own playbook. That What they recommended after 2009 is you strike very hard, very quickly. The use of lethal force should be used. That really hasn't happened this time. You've had people die, but the numbers really aren't nearly as high as we have seen in the past with these demonstrations. And I think it's because the regime is actually at a loss of what to do. It's this movement of women, the possibility of having to shoot large number of women, I think has caught them off guard, made them deeply anxious of how to handle this. So that's why I think they're taking a very slow approach. They're trying to figure out a way to kill this thing incrementally without it generating massive protests that we saw, for example, in 2009 that brought hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people out on the streets. Those are the type of demonstrations that could crack the regime, crack the security services, and that the regime wants to avoid at all costs. What can we say about Hamani? Again, I don't know to what extent you know, there are reports that he's gravely ill. If he is not long for this world, is there any reason to think that the next supreme leader or any other, whatever else emerges from that religious leadership might be different in any way, conceivably more favorably disposed to a somewhat more liberal domestic regime? Or is that all just for the birds? I think that's for the birds. Yeah. I think the supreme leader has ensured that the circle has gotten ever smaller around him and that he has selected individuals like Ibrahim Raisi, the president, who are in fact in agreement with his overall view of the way things should be and certainly 
how important it is to stave off the West to ensure that Islamic values as he sees them remain rigorous. So I wouldn't expect any type of more liberal leadership. I would expect actually the leadership to be as severe, but not as clever. I think one has to give credit to the Khamenei. In my mind, he is the most accomplished dictator in the Middle East post-World War II, and he survived a lot. Now, I would also say that I'm not sure he is on his deathbed. I mean, the man has had cancer for a number of years. From my former life in the agency, I really don't trust health intelligence. It almost inevitably is wrong. And clerics lead a fairly healthy life. They eat a good diet. They read a lot. Some of them have lots of sex. I mean, they don't do anything that is actually... They don't drink. They don't do drugs. Yeah, they don't drink. Model human beings in many ways. Exactly. So far (laughs) as maintaining a low blood pressure, they're usually pretty good. So I suspect he might be with us for a while. But if he does pass from this earth, I do think the question of how they select a new supreme leader could be challenging. And it could provide an opportunity for the elite circles to sort of eat themselves. I don't think the product of that internal discord, if that happens, will be a more moderate or liberal individual, just the opposite. I think it will be someone who's quite harsh and has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is willing to spill blood. And what about the opposition, if we can even call it that? We've got these disparate protests. We've had many of these protests over the years. We do know that anybody who's ever emerged as any kind of somewhat politically different line is very quickly disappears. Really, to be effective, the protests do need leadership. They need direction and they need a sense of purpose and mission. Is there any reason for us to think that there are groups that could command support, that could actually coalesce these disparate protesting forces into some genuinely organized opposition that could really pose a challenge to the regime? Well, I mean, I think that's both the genius and the problem of the opposition. The regime hasn't been able to stop these protests because there is really no leadership to them. They spontaneously generate. Now, uh, behind the scenes, we may discover after this is over that, in fact, there were little pocket cells of individuals who were coordinating a lot of these demonstrations. But I think for the most part, it's probably not true. The regime is very, very good at finding individuals who have charisma and eliminating them. Now, that does pose a problem long term for the opposition, perhaps even midterm for the opposition, and that you obviously need to have some type of leadership structure that can come in if the regime starts to crack. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, it's quite crystal clear what the opposition wants, and that is it wants the end of the Islamic Republic. And you have seen this crystallize over the decades where If you go back and you look at the early protests, those protests usually started over a specific issue. And then gradually, if they continued, they turned into a clear attack upon the Islamic Republic, upon the theocracy. Now the demonstrations start off that way. I mean, literally at light speed after the death of Miss Amini, the protests were quite clear. They were saying down with the dictator, down with the Islamic Republic. And that's one reason the regime has got a problem here. They can't really buy it off. If you look at someone like Ali Lahajani, who used to be at the tippy tip of the totem pole, who has now been somewhat of an outcast. I mean, he's trying to think of ways that the regime can sort of heal the wounds of society. And if you read what he's written and spoken, I mean, you can tell he can't really find the answer. There doesn't seem to be a third way. So I suspect what you're going to get is 
you're going to have this very slow unwinding until you get a big spark. And that's when we get to see how much juice the regime has. Can it handle demonstrations that are 100,000 or 200,000 strong? If these demonstrations don't rise to that level, then I think this could drag on for quite some time. I don't expect the regime to be able to snuff it out, but if you don't have certain protests of a certain dimension, you can't overcome, you can't test the security forces. We're going to take a short break there, but when we come back, we'll have more with Ruel Gorecht. We're talking about the protests in Iran. And when we come back, we'll have more on the wider world's reaction and what it could all mean for diplomacy in the Middle East and the rest of the world. Stay with us. We've all felt left out. And for people who move to this country, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Welcome back. I'm talking with Real Mark Gorecht, commentator, author, expert on the Middle East, about the protests in Iran and the implications they may have for the wider world. Are there any lessons from what we've seen, Ruel, in the rest of the Middle East over the last 10 or 15 years or so with the Arab Spring and what happened in Iraq in terms of what we can learn about how these regimes, these dictatorial authoritarian regimes are ultimately weakened or brought down? Or, or is Iran just so sui generis, you know, Persian country, ancient civilization, an extreme Shia religious authoritarian power that's been in there for nearly 50 years, or as we look at what happened in Libya or Egypt or some of those other countries, the role of outsiders, for example, that the West can play or that other countries can play. Is there anything at all in the extraordinary events that happened in the last 15 years? Those are excellent questions. I'm inclined to think that Iran is more dissimilar than similar. I mean, it has really gone through both a modernizing secular dictatorship, which sparked the revolution, and it's gone through theocracy. I mean, it really is the only state in the region to have gone through both so far. And in each of those events, those periods, I think the Iranians have learned a lot. And there's been a hundred-year tradition in Iran of what you might say, the commonweal trying to restrict the power of the sovereign. You have also had the growth, and it's real, of a democratic spirit. You always have to remember that the Islamic revolution really started off with two pillars, two poles. One was religious and the other was democratic. And that is one reason why the Islamic Republic maintained some form of democracy, however controlled, because it was important and it was legitimate to express that yearning, that aspiration. And I would argue that the regime made a serious mistake when the Supreme Leader decided that democratic side of the Islamic Republic was too dangerous. That after the troubles of late 1990s with Mohammed Khatami and what was then a real reform movement with the pro-democracy green movement, the decision was made that they really couldn't trust democracy anymore, that it had to be completely controlled. By doing that, they actually shut down a pressure valve, an escape valve, that allowed dissatisfaction with the regime to actually have a way out where you could have the elected government have some control in the system, some ability to affect the lives of Iranians. That has vanished. And with it, I think it's increased the pressure on the regime significantly, which is why even small demonstrations or just the killing of one girl 
can explode into something that the regime has great difficulty handling. What role is the outside powers playing, primarily thinking about we in the United States here? But I mean, we've had, you know, the last 10 years or so, we had Obama pursuing the JCPOA and getting the joint communique on Iran's nuclear program with the lifting of sanctions in exchange for what turned out to be not very significant concessions by the Iranians. Obviously, Trump came in and immediately repudiated that. Biden came in supposedly trying to kind of resurrect it. Now, it looks as though that's kind of finally dead with the latest, obviously, <laughs> Iran, even as it's fighting its own people, sending the Russians weapons to help the Russians fight the Ukrainians. How do you assess the role that the U.S. in particular, the U.S. and the other nations have been playing in contributing to either the instability that we're seeing now in Iran through the economic sanctions, for example, what role has the economic sanctions played, or the extent to which we could be doing more to be helping the opposition, as it were, to helping to undermine the regime? I think so far as the West, the United States and Europe having any direct role, I mean, uh, we have not. You know, I think the Biden administration is incredibly lucky that even before September the 16th, the Supreme Leader had told the United States and the Europeans, you know, gumshow, get lost on the nuclear question, because obviously it would be extremely embarrassing for the Biden administration to be sending billions of dollars of sanctions relief to the regime at the same moment that it's killing young girls in the streets. We could have a negative role. We have had a negative role, I think, principally in trying to give sanctions relief to the regime. I think it's important to note that if you look back during the Trump administration, basically everybody on the planet disliked President Trump except folks in Iran. And despite my best efforts to look at video feeds and graffiti and other such things uh, coming out of the Islamic Republic during Trump's administration about the reimposition of sanctions, about withdrawing from the JCPOA, I'll be damned if I could find any protests that were saying down with Trump or down with sanctions. I think there's a real misnomer there about the sanctions being opposed by the man on the street or about the United States being held responsible for Iran's predicament. I think the demonstrations have shown very clearly that the United States' position in Iran has gone up as the theocracy has gone down. So could the United States do more to help those folks inside? Yes, though I think it would take time to do that. We certainly don't have the intelligence apparatus that could suddenly come into play and to support demonstrators. It would take time to deploy, for example, strike funds. There are lots of different things you could try to do, but all of these things would take time. They would have to require bipartisan support, and I don't see any of that happening. I do believe the president of the United States could exercise his bully pulpit much more effectively in support of these individuals. And they'd have to give up on the idea of arms control to which the entire Democratic Party is addicted. What about the more, more immediate concentric circle of outsiders, if you like? Think about Saudi Arabia, long-term adversary, obviously, of this regime in Iran, a lot of historical enmity between them. That does seem perhaps you know, to have got a little warmer. Give us your sense of how the immediate region is dealing with Iran. And you know, Iran rose to this extraordinary hegemony in the region over the last 20 years because of its role in Iraq and Yemen and Syria and what's what. Is that now on the retreat? Are we now seeing maybe that these immediate outside powers are asserting themselves? I think certainly as the American retreat, retrenchment has moved on, the 
local powers have decided to flex their own muscles to some extent and have certainly started viewing the region not exclusively through an American lens, which was Saudis probably did that more than others. And I think it became crystal clear under Trump when he refused to militarily respond to the drone and cruise missile attacks and the attacks on shipping that the Iranians orchestrated, that it was clear that the United States had changed its policy in the region. I mean, both the United Arab Emirates quite openly and then Crown Prince, the Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman privately, you know, sent emissaries to Tehran. So I think the Saudis realize quite correctly that they can't go one-on-one against the Iranians. Uh, The Iranians would win that contest. And the United Arab Emirates are completely unreliable on the Iranians, particularly Dubai, where any Iranian of affluence has multiple accounts. So there is a recalibration taking place in the Gulf. These demonstrations always change the equation. And uh, I would say that, for example, if they succeeded, their success would also pose problems for uh, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates. If you could actually establish some type of functioning democracy in Iran, its magnetic power would be enormous. And I think U.S.-Saudi relations, U.S.-Emirati relations would also adjust to that fact, probably not to the advantage of either the Saudis or the Emiratis. Israel is a wild card. You know, the Iranians, I think, and they've been open in their expression of a certain awe for the way the Israelis have been able to conduct themselves both in clandestine actions, sabotage actions, assassinations inside of Iran, and also for their actions in Syria, which really changed the Iranian game plan. The regular Israeli bombing of Iranian positions significantly altered the way the Revolutionary Guard Corps thought they could develop Syria for a base of operations against Israel and in support of the Lebanese Hezbollah. So, I don't know if the Iranians fear, for example, still in Israeli air raid against their nuclear facilities. They certainly still fear an American air raid, but it would be a reach for the Israelis. It's hard to know those things because conspiracy and the belief in conspiracies, which is profound inside the ruling circles in Iran, can affect the way they assess risk. In this case, it could work to Israel's advantage because the Supreme Leader, for example, has Jews on the brain. So it could actually play to Israel's advantage in that they could view the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, as a a more lethal threat than they actually are. And that leads me to the $64,000 question, or the 64 megaton question, which is about, in the content we were talking about, the JCPOA, the Joint Coordinated Plan of Action by the, the US, the P5 plus Germany, all, of course, with the aim of dealing with Iran's obviously quite well-advanced nuclear program. What's the latest from what we think of where Iran is in the development of that program, and of obviously how, given the JCPOA has essentially failed, what's the way in which we in the West and, crucially, Israel might deal with it. I think the only unknown factor on the nuclear question is how far advanced uh, the regime is in the development of a nuclear trigger. Mossad was saying six months ago that the Iranians were 18 to 24 months away from developing a nuclear trigger. Now, that tells you right away that they really don't know. 
that they're making deductions based on a general calculation using their archival material that the Mossad snitched from Tehran. But it tells you they don't have agents in place. You don't have a window like that if you had agents in place. And I think the Americans have more or less accepted that view. So the general consensus is, is if the Iranians wanted to, they could probably develop that nuclear trigger pretty quickly, certainly before the end of the Biden administration. Other than that, I think they have developed all the other component parts, at least to test a nuclear weapon. I think so far as it comes to uranium enrichment, I mean, they're past the point of no return here. They've demonstrated the competence to develop more advanced centrifuges. They still haven't been able to deploy working models of the most advanced centrifuges, so far as we know. But they're well on the way there. And once you have these advanced centrifuges up and running, you can have very small cascades that are essentially undetectable. They don't have a very big electrical signature that can develop bomb-grade uranium very quickly. So what are we going to do about that? I think it's pretty clear the Biden administration has no desire to engage in military action to sort of attempt to prevent this. The only unanswered question is, do the Israelis? Now, my view on that is that in 2011, Bibi Netanyahu and Ahud Barak wanted to go for it. They wanted to see if they could militarily take out those facilities. They were voted down in their own cabinet. The IDF was pretty strongly opposed to it, I was told. Is that because of uncertainty about the effectiveness of a strike or fear of the implications of a strike, you know, mass terrorism across the region, or retaliation? I mean, what? Those are good questions. I'm not sure I know the answers to them all. First and foremost, there was a concern about their capacity to do it. Secondarily was the potential American reaction. I think terrorism is the last issue. I do think the Israelis are constantly concerned about what would happen if Hezbollah could let loose a significant number of missiles. That is always on the Israeli mind. And I don't think Iron Dome has solved that problem. But the key point, I think, is that Netanyahu and Barak, who was unlike Netanyahu, was all, he was not all bark. He was bite, bite. Bibi Netanyahu has often been bark, but no bite. You know, they wanted to go for it. Both of them wanted to go for it. And the rest of the cabinet was unprepared to go there. The IDF was unprepared to go there. I don't think the Israelis are in a stronger position now than they were in 2011. The Iranians are certainly in a stronger position, given that they've been able to advance their program so much further. So I am skeptical that the military option still exists. It's always possible, but I find it unlikely. I don't think sanctions certainly aren't going to stop the nuclear program. I think sanctions have an important role to play and denying the regime resources and the containment policy. But so far as a nuclear deterrent, I think sanctions have proven themselves more or less useless. They've just gotten the program too far down the road. So it's not a happy situation when you look at the nuclear program. Obviously, if the regime were to crack up, then the nuclear program might die in its tracks. The the final diplomatic or geopolitical question is Russia and China. They've obviously become increasingly important economic partners with Iran over the last year or two, and especially for Russia, given the economic isolation that Russia's faced post-Ukraine. But with Russia and China clearly moving even closer together than they were, this partnership without limits that they've talked about, and the world moving, it seems, towards a kind of new Cold War in which Russia and China are closely aligned on the other side, and we'll see where that leads, whether it's regard to obviously the Ukraine or Taiwan or wherever else. 
does it become a kind of a, a Cold War? Does it rely on Russia and on China essentially for the maintenance of that regime, as it has obviously done in any case for some time? But does it become a kind of a, a locus of a, a sort of new Cold War conflict in the way that we used to see in other countries during the original Cold War? I think the supreme leader certainly sees Iran aligned with what he calls the anti-American forces, which is China and Russia preeminently. I mean, Iran has always, the Islamic Republic too, has, has always looked West, both in a friendly way and also in an angry way. It has looked West for inspiration. In part, actually, that was the idea for them, for the Iranians behind the JCPOA. The Iranian president, uh, Hassan Rouhani, had this vision that Iran could sort of adopt a Chinese model. That is, they could use Western investment to create a more powerful Islamic Republic, or an Islamic Republic that could have more sway in the Middle East. And, you know, the Iranians have always loved Western investment. They particularly love German industry. They have a real thing about German equipment. And that was tried, and the Supreme Leader went along with it, even though he has profound hesitation and fear of Western influence and even Western commerce. But because that failed, I think they have now bounced back to the idea that the Islamic Republic is much safer by developing what they call a resistance economy in keeping its major ties to countries like Russia and China, which they see as being reliably and consistently anti-American. In the context of these and whatever happens with these ongoing protests in Iran that we've been talking about, taking a 10-year time horizon, do you think in 10 years or so, are we going to still be seeing this authoritarian, theocratic, repressive, brutal regime continuing to brutalize its people, facing these uprisings every now and then. Are you optimistic, let me put it that way, that in a 10-year period, things are going to change? I'm more optimistic than I have been. Every regime has to generate a certain level of legitimacy. It has to be able to create a new generation of the faithful. That's becoming increasingly difficult for the Islamic Republic. And again, the Islamic Republic, its strength, I have to say, in that it has been fairly honest about its internal weaknesses. By being fairly honest, it allows you to see inside in ways that they see themselves. They are well aware, for example, that they're having a hard time getting recruitments for the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. They're well aware they're having hard times getting young men to become clerics. That's quite something because that is the pathway to ultimate power in the Islamic Republic. They are well aware that young women are not lining up to marry clerics and traditional families. So there are a lot of factors out there that the regime has paid close attention to that they are well aware that they have failed in the ultimate mission. Now, on the other side of that, I just have to say that part of the whole Shiite mythology of this regime is that they are a small group of people who have ultimate knowledge standing against a hostile world. So there's more resilience inside of the Islamic Republic, I would argue, than you would find, say, in a Marxist system equivalently decayed. But I do think that the regime views these demonstrations differently. And I think we always have to try to see these things as they see them. And I think they see them as the most lethal threat 
to the Islamic Republic since the Green Movement in 2009. And some of them are suggesting it's more dangerous. So if they think it's dangerous, then that should at least give us some optimism. That's a very, very good note on which to end. Royal correct commentator, author on the Middle East. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. My pleasure. That's it for this episode of Free Expression with me, Jerry Baker, from the Wall Street Journal Opinion Pages. Thanks very much for listening. Please do join us again next week as we take another deep look at some of the big issues driving our world. Thanks very much and goodbye. <laughs>